Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to John chapter number 3. We'll dismiss the children. John chapter number 3. We'll ask um, that we pray for the Davises. Miss Glenda Davis was life flighted this morning at Grady Hospital and, and uh, still waiting to get more clear update, but it appears there may have been a severe stroke that took place, and so let's pray for them at this time. Lord, we do ask that you would put your hand upon Mrs. Davis and, and Brother Davis as well, and, and help give the doctors wisdom and, and uh, understanding to, to correctly diagnose and then to provide the treatment necessary, and we'll thank you for that. Your name we pray. Amen. John chapter 3, let's stand together. Glad you're here this morning. If you're a guest, we are welcoming you and hope you feel welcome. We would love to be able to um, make sure we get a chance to greet and meet you after the service. John chapter 3, notice the most familiar verse in this chapter, if not the book and all the Bible. Verse number 16, the Bible reads, For God... So loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. This is a Bible text that is truly inexhaustible. We could spend an eternity, and that's not just an exaggeration, that is reality. Because these are words that are true words. They're words given to us by God. And they're words that mean something. All the highways of divine truth meet in this metropolis of a text. God's love to you. It's all the hub here that is found of all revealed truth. John 3.16 It's been said that it's the sweetest song ever sung on this side of heaven. Probably more sermons have been given from John chapter 3 and verse 16. Citywide, countrywide awakenings have occurred because of the preaching and the reality of John 3 and verse 16. I want to speak this morning from John 3 and verse 16. God so loved the world, that means you. Thank you. Please be seated. Within religion, you've got a lot of isms. And all the isms can be solved and helped in John 3 and verse 16. Notice it says, for God. That phrase, those two words, it responds to atheism. Atheism's claim is that there is no God. Well, John tells us by help of the Holy Spirit, for God. It says, for God, what's the next two words? So love. That responds to fatalism. Fatalism asserts that God is an impersonal force. No, this is a God who's real. He's a person. He so loves. It says, God, for God so loved. What's the next two words? The world. That responds to nationalism. You hear a lot about nationalism today. 
And that says that God loves and he's really for, he's bent, he's slanted, he's prejudiced towards just a particular group of people. Well, this tells us that's not true. It's the entire world. For God so loved the world that, what's the next two words? That responds to materialism. It is more blessed to give than to receive. Our God is a great giver. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, what's the next two words? That responds to Mohammedanism. That is, God has no son. Sure he does. His son is Jesus Christ. And then it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, what's the next two words? That responds to Calvinism. That Christ died only for a select elect, the chosen frozen. But that's not true. For the Bible says it's for whosoever believes. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth, what's the next two words? In him. That responds to pluralism. That is, all religions are equal. No, he is exclusive in him. God is saying very carefully to us that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life in him. And then it tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should, what's the next two words? Not perish. Now that responds to... Annihilationism. Annihilationism is accepted by a few different religions that simply teach that there is no hell. Once you take your last breath, you cease to exist. But the Bible tells us otherwise. Whatever your hell may seem like here upon this earth, you don't know hell until you've experienced the Bible description of hell. In fact, if this is a rough life for you, it's the best life you'll ever have if you die and go to hell. Then look at one last part. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but, and what's the last three words? Have everlasting life. And that responds to Arminianism. Arminianism, different than Calvinism, Arminianism says that you can lose your salvation and that God only gives life conditionally. Well, this tells us that there's no condition to the gift that is given once it's been given. I'm telling you, all the religions of the world can be solved in John 3 and verse 16. It's a simple message from God to you. And it reveals the mind of God, the heart of God, and the will of God to the creation of man that God has produced. God loves you. William Barclay, commentator, said all great men have had their favorite text. But this text has been called everybody's text. Augustine said God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. The context of John 3.16 is a conversation it took place with Jesus and Nicodemus, an expert scholar of the scriptures. Jesus' Old Testament illustration that he gives to this expert Bible scholar, Nicodemus, who was lost. 
he uses an illustration from the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21. It was an event during the 40 years of wilderness wandering where the people of, um, of Israel, they became disobedient and God judged their disobedient by, disobedience by sending venomous serpents, snakes to invest, infest the camp. And when those who had been bitten were on the verge of dying, we are told that Moses intercedes on their behalf. And Moses' prayer was answered by God with a display of God's grace and mercy to his rebellious people. God told Moses, you are to make a bronze replica of this snake and raise it above the camp. And those who were bitten, they would be healed if they looked. They had to look. And when they looked at that bronze brazen serpent, they were acknowledging that they were guilty. They were expressing their faith in God's forgiveness and healing. And what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is this is the picture of man's forgiveness and salvation that results from a sacrificial gift. And so thousands of years before, Moses is using this as a picture of what Jesus Christ would do. And Jesus is telling Nicodemus that this picture from thousands of years ago is what will become a reality when Jesus himself is lifted up on the cross. The hurting, the dying Israelites, they were cured by trusting in what the word of God was given to them. And they looked and they were healed. They didn't have anything they could do. They had no works. They had nothing in which to improve upon God's plan. They simply looked and then they were healed. That was a faith decision. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus in the same way, whoever looks in faith and by faith alone to the crucified Christ will be cured from the sins, uh, uh, curse and deadly bite, the venom of sin that just pulses through the very veins of mankind. And you can have that great eternal life, forgiveness of sins, but you have to look by faith to Jesus. John 3.16 is an amazing picture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Would you note three things this morning? Number one, the Bible describes for us the greatest giver in all the world. For God so loved that he gave. The greatest giver. This entire text basically revolves around ten words. God loved, world, gave, son, whosoever, believeth, perish, have, and life. Ten words. You know, God's used that number in other places to demonstrate significance in what he was doing. In fact, the first 10 words of the Bible in Genesis 1 and verse number 1, it describes God's creative work. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
In Exodus chapter 20, he used 10 commandments to describe God's great legislative work. But in John 3 and verse 16, God's great redemptive work, his ability and provision to save whosoever, whichever one of you that wants the gift, it can be found in John 3 and verse 16. These 10 words, they can be arranged into pairs. God and Son, that's the giver and the gift, loved and gave. That means God proves you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. God loves you and therefore He gave. Here's another pair, world and whosoever. Anybody, everybody could be saved, but the only ones who are saved are the ones who respond to God's great love, believe, and have. In other words, there must be a response to God's love and gift. Here's another pair, perish and life, two eternal destinies, hell and heaven. And this verse is, is so clear. It's a shallow verse that, that every little child can wade in it and, and never be afraid of drowning in their sin because God loves every little child and has made provision. Yet it's so deep that not even the greatest scholar could swim in it and go far enough to the bottom to ever exhaust this great verse. The unknown hymn writer put it this way when he wrote, Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God alone would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. For God so loved. This is a love called out of a person's heart by an awakened sense of value in an object which causes one to prize it. God, He loves. He loves you. He created you. He lost man in the garden due to the wrong choice and sin that separated His creation, mankind, from His great heart. And so God is telling us, yet He loves the very ones that turned their back on Him. 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14, For the love of Christ constraineth us. Romans 8 and verse 38, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Galatians 2 and verse number 20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 3 and verse 19, Paul's great prayer for the church of Ephesus was to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge, that ye might be filled with all the fullness of God. In Ephesians 5 and verse 2, he challenges the people of God and walk in love as Christ also hath loved us. 
1 John 4, 16, for God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. For God so loved, he loved the world. The love of God is limitless and embraces all mankind. And no matter the color, no matter the, the country, no matter the kind, there's something about God's love that can reach beyond with no limitation. John 15, 13 says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. But do you know that we were not friends of God? None of us are friends of God when we're born into this world in our sin. In fact, the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, we're aliens. We're enemies. Ephesians 2 and verse 1, we're dead in trespasses and in sins. Ephesians 2 and verse 2, children of disobedience. Ephesians 2 and verse 12, we're strangers afar off from God. Romans 5 and verse 8 says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, we're not friends of God. We're not friends of God until we respond to God's love. A lady who had been a prostitute came to a preacher one night and said, I want to get saved. I need to get saved, but I can't get saved. I can't get saved the way I am. I'm going to clean up my life so that I can belong to God. The preacher said, those are your terms. They are not God's terms. For the only way that you can come to God is the way you are. Amen. Charlotte Elliott sat down one day and wrote these words, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou biddest me to come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Isaiah 1 and verse 18, Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Psalm 103 verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That's the greatest giver in all the world, the one who so loved you and me. Number two, I want you to see the greatest guarantee. No one can give a guarantee, a lifetime guarantee like God can. It says that God so loved the world, the greatest giver, that he gave his only begotten son, the greatest giver, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. Now that's the greatest guarantee. See, God calls on us to trust His Son, to trust Him. God will not forgive the ultimate sin of refusing Jesus. He can forgive any sin, but He cannot forgive the sin of rejecting and refusing Jesus. In other words, you take your last breath without Jesus Christ being your Savior, then He can't overlook that. You decide what you're going to do with Jesus here and now, and your decision has determined what He does with you in eternity. 
Many years ago, Bughouse Square, Chicago, was a place where heretics would come and they would propagate their false gospel. An atheist approached the platform and said, I'll take five minutes to prove that there is no God. And after minutes went by and his time expired, he said, see, there is no God. To which a young teenage boy said, that just simply proves that God is gracious and merciful. Listen, if there is a God, why would he go along with your terms? If he went along with your terms, you and I wouldn't have a chance. But he is the greatest giver. He loves you. And he has the greatest guarantee that if you would but trust him. He didn't ask for you to work for him. He didn't ask for you to try to buy something. He didn't ask for you to do anything. He just asked that you would trust him and believe him that you would not perish. Think of the Israelites who were bitten by the snakes. Each one suffered who were bitten. And they had to look themselves. One could have been lying within one yard of that pole. One could actually be lying up against that pole with their back against the pole. But they would not be healed until they would turn and put their eyes upon that brazen pole. And Jesus is simply asking. That you would trust him. Look to him. Someone says, I, I'm saved because I'm a member of a church. You'll die and go to hell as a church member. I'm saved because I've been baptized. You'll go to hell being religious. You don't get saved because of what you do. You're saved because of what Jesus did and the decision you made to trust him. The greatest guarantee is that whosoever believeth in him, not about him, but in him, should not perish. On January 6, 1850, there was a snowstorm that crippled Colchester, England. A young man, a young teenage boy, could not get to the church he usually attended, so he went, by, he went to a nearby chapel. And there was an ill-prepared lay preacher substituting for the absent preacher. And he preached from Isaiah 45 and verse 22 that says, Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. For many months this young teenager had become miserable. He was under deep conviction. But though he had been reared in church, his father and his grandfather were both preachers. He still had not settled his salvation. The substitute preacher didn't really have much to say, so he just kept repeating the text. And he would go on to say, a man doesn't need to go to Bible college to learn to look. A man doesn't have to be educated to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. About that time, he saw this visitor, this young teenage boy who was just coming into this service because he couldn't get to his and he looked at him and he pointed at this young teenage boy. He said, young man, you look very miserable. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. The young man did by faith look to Jesus Christ. And that day he was saved. That was the young Charles Haddon Spurgeon because he looked. Whosoever believeth in him, Jesus goes on to say, a Catholic lady was challenged to read the Gospel of John. 
A preacher sat down with her in the living room. She said, we were told that there were seven sacraments and commandments that we must adhere to. Do you know that in the gospel of John, the word believe or its equivalent, believe, believeth, is found 98 times in the gospel of John? John 3, 15, the verse right before 16 says that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 18, couple verses down, he that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3, 36 Come down to the end of the chapter. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. John 5, 24. Jesus said, Barely, barely, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And shall not, pass, shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Jesus said in John 11 and verse 25, in that funeral setting, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? John 20 at the end of the chapter, verse 30 and verse 31, gives us the reason for the book of John. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. We've seen the greatest giver. We see the greatest guarantee. But would you notice in this last thought in verse number 16, the greatest gift, the greatest gift, but have everlasting life, but have everlasting life. John Phillips said, we are engineered out of the stuff of eternity, eternal life, the life of God himself. This great sentence, verse 16, which summarizes the whole gospel story, begins with God and ends with everlasting life. It begins with one who had no beginning. It ends with that which has no ending. The greatest gift, everlasting life. Someone says, but I thought it was true that we're going to live forever someplace. That is true. You will. You'll live as long as God lives, either in heaven or in hell. But when it speaks here of everlasting life, it's not just talking about quantitative. Because if you die and go to hell, you'll spend eternity in hell. Everlasting life is talking about the quality of the nature of Jesus Christ. The greatest gift is not something, it's someone. And when you look like the Israelites who are bitten by the snakes, 
and you look to the one, the Son of God, high and lifted up 2,000 years ago, who took your sin and mine, and you look by faith and casting your dependence upon him, recognizing there's nothing that I can do. There's nothing that I can do to absolve my sin. There's not anything that I can do to rid myself of its guilt and penalty, but I can look to the one who can. And when you do, you don't just get something. You don't get a ticket to heaven. You receive the very person who came from heaven, who inhabits heaven, and is the one and the only one who can take you there. But he didn't save you just to go to heaven or he would have taken each and every one the moment you got saved. Primarily, salvation is a gift of everlasting quantity and qualitative life. It is taking up in your temple the body which God created to be the dwelling place of God. His very spirit. That's why Jesus told his disciples in John 14 and 15, I have to go. Because if I don't come, then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the advocate, another of the exact same kind, he cannot come. See, Jesus was bodily in one place at a time. He said, I must go. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of the Father, when He comes, He will be able to abide in you, with you always. He'll never leave you nor forsake you. That's how a person can have love all the time. It's His love. It's His joy. It's His peace. The greatest gift is a great opportunity. Whosoever believes in him, but it's also a great deliverance should not perish, but have everlasting life. D.L. Moody had the words placed above his pulpit. God is love. But he didn't always believe that. Oh, he believed it, that it was there, but he didn't believe it by experience. Not when he first started preaching. When D.L. Moody first started preaching, he was so zealous for God and had such a hatred for sin that he could not absorb the full force of the words that God is love. He preached that God was angry with the wicked and stood behind sinners with a drawn sword, ready to cut down sinners if they did not repent. Now, in a measure, this is true. God does hate sin. That's why Jesus died for our sin. But God's not standing behind looking to lob off the soul of man. He stands behind every sinner with arms outstretched saying, I love you. And it was a young Englishman by the name of Harry Morehouse who helped God teach D.L. Moody this great truth. When D.L. Moody first visited England, young Harry Morehouse was known as the boy preacher. He was so young. One day Morehouse told Moody that he wanted to go back to Chicago with him and preach in his church. 
Well, Moody looked upon this young man and thought he was just too young to be preaching and, and he wasn't quite cut out for this. And so Moody made sure not to let the young Harry know when his boat would be leaving. But not long after D.L. Moody had gotten back to Chicago that he had a letter that arrived to him stating that Morehouse was in the United States and he was looking forward to coming to Chicago. Well, Moody wrote a very cold answer telling him, if you ever came west, then let me know. A few days later, he received another letter from Morehouse that said, I arrive in Chicago on Thursday. Well, Moody didn't know what to do. He's got to be in another city on Friday and Saturday. And he was pacing, he was fretting, and he certainly didn't want to disrupt this church of several thousand by letting this young boy of a preacher preach who certainly didn't know what to do and how to handle that kind of a service. But finally, he let his leadership know this young Harry Morehouse may show up. And if he does, let him speak in two evenings and then send him on his way. Well, even the leadership of the church was afraid after seeing Moody's concern. But they said, we will try him and see. When Moody returned, the first question he asked his wife was, did the young preacher show up and how did he do? His wife said, he has preached two nights from John 3.16. I think you'll like him. He preaches a bit differently than you do. Moody said, well, how is that? His wife said, he tells people that God loves them. Moody said, well, he's wrong. But I will ask to speak. I'll ask him to speak again tonight and I will see for myself. Mrs. Moody said, I think you'll agree with him after you hear him preach. Moody went down to the church and he began to notice there was an anticipation and and an excitement that seemed to be among the people. And Harry Morehouse, he went to the pulpit and he said, if you will turn to the third chapter of John, we'll look at the 16th verse tonight. And he preached seven sermons just from that one text. He preached again on the last night. Morehouse went to the pulpit. Every eye was upon him, wondering what he was going to preach from on this last night. He said, friends... I've been hunting all day for a new text, but I cannot find one so good as the old one, so we'll go back to the third chapter of John and the 16th verse. Moody said he could never forget the closing words of that night's sermon. Morehouse said, My friends, for a whole week I've been trying to tell you how much God loves you. But I cannot do it with this poor, stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder, climb up to heaven, and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, to tell me how much God loves sinners, all he could say would be, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God changed D.L. Moody that night and for the rest of his life and the manner of his preaching forever changed. From then on, Moody preached that God was behind the sinner with love 
instead of a sword. And that in rejecting God, the sinner was running away from the God who so loved him. John 3.16. It's simple, but it's true. Let's stand together, please.